thing I want to mention is that next week the Sunday school kids will be here. They're going to be selling pizza and dessert kits in between the two services. And the proceeds of this is to help with the Haiti missions trip. If you have questions, talk to Katie Markward. Um, she's going to be uh, kind of helping to coordinate this. So that's the first thing. The next thing is that Camp Vera is coming up and Renee Gray is helping to coordinate meals. And she needs some donations and some help. So look, uh, in the hallway out here, there's a table uh, with a sign-up sheet. So that's to help with meals for Camp Vera. So take a look at that. She's got some things listed. Um, she'd love to see some names next to some items by the end of the day. So uh, we would appreciate your help with that. Um, now I have two people that I need to come up. Well, Doug, let's have you come up first. Another reminder, uh, our summer program starts this Wednesday on discovering your role in the church and in the Christian community. Um, we're going to be talking over uh, spiritual gifts. And um, one of my gifts here is to come up and nag and remind you to come. Um, but um, we've got some gift tests out on the Welcome Center. There's one packet per couple. So there's two answer sheets in here. So you can, one set of questions and then you can fill out the, the answer sheets. Um, we recognize that these tests are not end-all, be-all. There's other ways of discovering your your gifts, and we're going to come and talk about that starting Wednesday night, but this is kind of just a helpful guide. Um, this uh, test actually covers 15 of the gifts covered in the Bible. You know, you may think that there's others out there. That's okay. Um, you know, there, in every church, there's always someone with that gift of discouragement. You know, we didn't include that one in this list, un unfortunately. So, uh, and we also figure that, you know, if someone has the gift of giving, then someone must have the gift of receiving, right? So maybe that's your gift of... Uh, always wanting to receive, so you'll discover that. Um, but please come uh, Wednesday night, uh, we're gonna have a good time and we're gonna talk about how uh, we can all work together as a body um, and uh, um, again, just have some fellowship time and, and uh, dig into the Bible a little bit, so thanks. I'm gonna ask that you bow with me as we prepare to study and worship through the looking at the Word of God. Father, you are a good, good Father, and uh, that's who you are, and we're blessed to be able to call you Father, and regardless of who our earthly Father is or was, uh, we know that you are the standard and that all of the rest of us fall woefully short of the example and the, the person and the reality of who you are. I pray now, Father, that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts. Uh, I know these things are still percolating and will continue to be in my own mind, and uh, the application of them is still needed to be fully driven home to me, and I'm guessing to each of us, and I pray that you would speak individually to each of us as I speak to us corporately. I pray that your spirit would uh, help us to hear what we need to hear individually for your glory, for the advancement of the cause of Christ, and for our spiritual well-being and betterment. Lord, take these words, which are your words, and help us to esteem them. I pray that this would be clear and our hearts would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Eco-challenge 
which, I don't know, I, I watched this a few years ago. There's going to be a new one in 2019. But Eco Challenge is a, is a competition. It's an ultimate expedition uh, race in which international teams are competing in a 24-hour non-stop race in some part of the world where they're going through the most rugged and uh, difficult terrain possible. They go on mountains, they go on the ocean, they go in the jungles, and they're racing against each other and there are time cutoffs. And so these ultimate adventure athletes are competing and being pushed to the limits of their mental and physical capabilities in order to not just survive but hopefully to succeed and to win the race but it's a it's a challenge that pushes them to the limits and their 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 survival and their success is dependent upon whether they acquire and whether they apply certain truths about nature and about their bodies and about life and about directions and navigation and then their teamwork and as I was thinking about this echo challenge, it, it seems to me a fitting metaphor for the church of Christ in the first century and the struggles that they encountered and as well for the things that we face in the world in which we live, the, the, the rugged and hostile environment of the worldliness that, or the wilderness of worldliness that every person who names the name of Jesus is thrust into and in which we live right now. And we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews and the author of Hebrews has spent a considerable amount of time, actually 12 chapters, preparing the beleaguered believers in, that he's writing to to not just survive but thrive by saying to them and declaring to them the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And the superiority of the Christian faith. Don't, don't run away from it. Don't back down from it. Stay with it, he says to them. And he's called them to pursue and to endure their faith because of the supremacy of Christ. Because Christianity is superior to the Judaism which they left and to any paganism that they might be tempted to be drawn into. It's superior to them. And the, the need for teamwork has been demonstrated for us in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. You've got to stick together. You've got to be loving the believers and caring for each other. Teamwork is essential if we're going to survive and not just survive but thrive. But then he moves on in chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, which is the text we're going to look to today. And obedience to the commands in three areas of our lives. In our marriage, with our money, and in our mindset are central if we're not just going to survive but thrive in the wilderness of worldliness. These obedience to these commands and directions are important. And so on this Father's Day, we prove that we really are children of our Heavenly Father. We, we live in ways that please our Heavenly Father. And we proclaim to the world the reality of our faith when we live in obedience to God in ways that enable us to thrive, not just get along in the wilderness of worldliness. 
And so I want you to turn with me, if you will, to the text or get your device out or whatever you need to to go to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read these verses. They're just four verses here, four through eight. I'm going to read these verses, five verses, I guess. I can't count, but we're going to read these verses and then we're going to unpack what these three areas of our lives, reverence and obedient worship to God in these three areas will enable us to not only survive, but also to thrive and live in ways that honor our Heavenly Father. So here we are in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 4. He says, let marriage be held in honor. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Pretty easy to see the three areas of life in which he's calling us to obedience. And the first is in our marriages. There are three concerns that seem to be played out in the text. The first is the attitude, and then second is uh, the action, and the final is the, the motivation for what we should do. So we'll look at the, the proper attitude that he's commanding us. It's a command. Let marriage be held in honor. Held in honor means highly valued and esteemed. I have on my right finger, my right ring finger, a ring that I received from my grandfather. And my grandfather, there were certain, there were nine diamonds in the ring. And my grandfather had, had two rings made, one for each of my sisters. It has three diamonds. And then I have the, the actual ring that my grandfather, it's a valuable ring to me. It's highly valued. God says, let marriage be held in honor. Let it be valued, highly valued. And marriage, and uh, I'm just going to lay it out here up front. I'm going to be talking about some pretty culturally important issues. Okay, just put it that way. But marriage is defined by God. It's instituted by him. He declared it. It's his idea. And he defined it and he designed it as a monogamous, heterosexual, and indissoluble union. One man, one woman for life. That's God's design. That's his plan. That's how he designed it. Jesus declared it to be so precious. In Matthew chapter 19, I have a slide on the screen. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the indissoluble part of what God designed it to be. And I realize we live in an imperfect world, and so there's some imperfect manifestations and outworkings of it. But that's the way God designed it. That's what we're to hold in honor. Marriage is to be held in honor. But there are two errant perspectives, two opposite extremes that press against the design and the definition of marriage and that seem to erode it in, in the culture. 
so that it is not valued among, and notice the text says, I like this, because it says, let marriage be held in honor among all. It means everybody. It means everybody's supposed to honor marriage. Yes, in the church of Jesus Christ, but outside the church, just let it be held in honor among all. So the first perspective that presses against the biblical design and definition of marriage is, it's a, I'm going to use a, a word maybe you're not familiar with, it's called asceticism. It's, a, it's a deprivation, deny yourself. Because in the first century and throughout centuries, there's been this misunderstanding that celibacy was somehow a route to greater spirituality. So that if you didn't get married, then somehow you would be a super spiritual person. That goes against the design and the definition of marriage. Now, that's not to say that if you are celibate or that you did get, didn't never get married or decide not to get married, that's not a, a shame on you. No, that's fine. That's good. That's okay. God allows for both. But we shouldn't demean or devalue marriage by thinking that somehow if you're not married, it's more spiritual. No, that's not true. The second is the opposite end of the extreme, and that's hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure at all costs. Okay, so that's what hedonism is. The, the mantra of hedonism, if it feels good, do it. And you've heard it before, and you'll hear it again. A hedonist considers his or her own fleshly desires as primary. And if the Bible or anybody else tells them otherwise, that they should restrain their personal, selfish, indulgent desires, well, that's not necessary. Or minimized, it's not necessary. Maximized, it's just plain obnoxious garbage that I don't have to listen to. A hedonist says, I'm living for me, and I'm going to do what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and it doesn't matter. Hedonism rules the day in our world. Hedonism rules the day in the world in which we live. We live in a world in which most people are living for their own selfish self-interest and self-indulgent desires, and it really doesn't matter what God says. But to the people in the first century, the writer of Hebrews gave them this word, he gives us this word, it does matter. The prevalence and the priority and the prom promotion of unbridled immorality is seen on TV, regular sitcom shows, commercials, news broadcasts, uh, sports events, you name it, it's there. It's in your face and it's blatant and it's becoming increasingly so. I ran across an interesting statistic. The divorce rate in America is decreasing. Now, for years, I, I would speak and I would say, you know, it's tragic. The divorce rate is increasing. And in the church, it's no different than in the world. The statistics were the same. The reality is now that the divorce rate is decreasing. But here's the sad reality. The reason the divorce rate is, is decreasing is because people aren't getting married anymore. They're just living together. So that's not a win. Let marriage be held in honor, the scripture says. The attitude is reflected in the action so that honoring marriage translates. And what does it mean to honor marriage? He says in the text, the 
attitude is let marriage be held in honor. The action that demonstrates it is in the next phrase. If you look at the text in verse 4, he says, For let, and let the marriage bed be, be undefiled. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Undefiled expresses purity in the marriage union, okay? Purity of intimacy within marriage. I'm going to say this. Only in marriage is sexual intimacy legitimized by the Word of God, okay? The Scripture. Only in marriage are sexual relations undefiled, and in marriage they express the union between the husband and wife, the oneness that God intended the marriage to reflect. There, when I was younger, my, my dad would buy us these uh, U.S. Mint proof sets, okay? It's just a marketing tool by the U.S. Mint to make money, but basically you buy a half dollar, a quarter, uh, a dime, a nickel, and a penny, and it's Ziploc sealed, you know? It's like vacuum sealed, so no human being has ever touched it. And if you're a numismaticist, which is a fancy word to say you collect coins, okay, uh, you know that when you, when you touch a coin, you get your body oils on it, and you get dirt on it, and it contaminates, it, it defiles it. Well, these are undefiled, okay? And the text here says that the marriage bed should be undefiled. Sexual purity before marriage and fidelity after marriage are expressions of acceptable worship to God. They mark us out as God's children. Now, I realize that that's not the case for a lot of people, okay? But the issue is, Let's don't worry about the past. God is able to forgive. And God wants to forgive. And so when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not, it's that, that, that now, moving forward, what is my perspective? And he says this to the people there, the Christians, the professing believers. Sexual purity was as a radical a concept in the permissive and promiscuous and pagan culture to which the author of Hebrews wrote as it is today. I want to say that again. Sexual purity is as radical a concept among the promiscuous and permissive and pagan culture to which he wrote as it is today. It's just like totally foreign. Really? Sexual purity? Before marriage and after marriage. See, honoring marriage as God defined it and as God designed it, it, it offends uh, modern sensibilities. Where adultery is, you know, that's accepted. And promiscuity is expected. And perversions are celebrated. That's the world we live in. And so this talk is... The Bible talk is foreign concept to that. See, the fallen heart really demands and desires to have its own way. That's what we want. You know, let me do my own thing. I'm doing my thing. Just leave me alone. We demand and we defend self-gratification at any cost. God's word calls us for self-control. 
I want to do things my way. I mean, you know, you're that way. There's a road close sign ahead, and you, half the time, you go through the road close sign because you're just going to see, yeah, I know there's a shortcut. I can get through this. There's a detour. Uh, or if I don't want the detour, they say it's closed to through traffic. Well, that just means there's another way, you know, I can, I can make it. That's our rebellious heart. And it's not just in the area of sexuality, but that's the case, and that's the text here right now that he's talking about. You see, God's word is unequivocating. That means it doesn't vary. It doesn't waffle in its condemnation of impurity and self-indulgence. And folks, impurity and self-indulgence are the central tenets of the moral revolution. That's the code word. The moral revolution that's sweeping across our country today. The major tenets of which, and it champions any sexual expression contrary to God's design and definition. So if you can think of some sort of a, uh, of a sexual expression that's different than one man and one woman for life, or uh, abstinence before marriage, that's the moral revolution, and they're pushing the envelope and saying it's what should be accepted, expected, and celebrated. I'm saying that. Not just accepted, not just promoted, but celebrated. God's word says, let marriage be held in honor. Marriage is God defined it. Marriage is God designed it. It's to be held up in high esteem because if you don't, what happens is that the erosion of God's ordained institutions lead to destruction. You don't hold marriage in honor, guess what happens? The family collapses. Marriage collapses, then the family collapses, then the church collapses, then the society collapses. That's what happens. God knows best, and he understands what's going on. I read, uh, I read an article that was about a report in one of the local um, news outlets about a, a church that has, has a banner. They had a banner, but the banner was stolen and then destroyed. And across the banner, and actually I've seen the banner uh, on this church, it said, God is still speaking. It was a rainbow, rainbow banner, and it was, God is still speaking. Okay, And the interview with the, the pastor of the church said, yes, there are parts of the Bible that say pretty direct things about gay sex, but we believe God is still speaking to us through the Bible and through each other, through prayer and through worship. Okay, so let me translate that. And, and uh, I don't know this person, and so I'm taking what they've said, and I'm trying to make an application, a conclusion based on what they're said. Basically, they're saying that God is still speaking, so he has spoken in his word and said some things about these issues, but now he's still speaking so that through worship and prayer and our own interactions with each other and that, he may be saying something different than what he has said. Let me say this, that our subjective beliefs and feelings never, never, never negate what God has explicitly stated in his word. Never. It is the standard. And refusing to honor marriage as God designed it and 
defined it, is to disregard God's word. It is to declare our own autonomy from God and to deny any penalty that may come as a result of our rebellion against God. You see, regardless, and I, and I want you to hear me, folks. I mean, I'm a human being. I've made mistakes in the past, too. And I know that most of us here have struggled with some of these issues. God is calling us now to chastity, to fidelity, and to purity. He is willing and gracious and wanting to forgive whatever has gone before. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to pay the debt that you and I deserve to pay. He paid the price so that if we put our faith or our trust in him, those sins are no longer held to our account, but we are free from their guilt and from the consequence, which is separation from God, and we can be free. Praise God. That's the message of salvation. And those who are his children, now he says, live like it. In liberty, freedom. And why would you want to do that? That's the motivation. And he says that in the last part of verse 4. He says, "For and this is strong language, but it is the truth of the word of God. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Oh boy. Yeah. It's a reality based on the holiness and the justice of God. But God is love. You bet he's love. That's why he sent his son Jesus to forgive us from our sins. But he's holy and he's righteous. You see, rebellion will receive its just reward. Um, apparently, I mean, the text says, God will judge both believers and unbelievers for their sins in these areas. Okay? That's, you know. And what is fornication anyway? Well, just think of, okay, it's a fancy word, but fornication is any sexual activity outside of marriage. Whether heterosexual or homosexual, any sexual relationships outside of marriage. That's fornication. It's illicit sexual activity. Well, and then he says any extramarital sexual activity, that's adultery. So once you're married, if you're in any kind of relationship sexually with somebody other than your partner, then that's wrong too. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Gets back to the definition. The only legitimate expression is within the context of a marriage union between a man and a woman, as God designed it. So judgment can come, I think, uh, immediately. Sometimes there's immediate judgment. Sometimes it may be disease. It may be death. It may be dis, uh, disassociation from people as a result of these sins. I can't prove this, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not God. I'm not going around saying, oh, God's judging that person. God's judging that person. But I do know how God works. There was a man that I know of who very shortly after he was discovered to be in an extramarital relationship with someone I know's wife, he died. Now, I can't prove it, but I have suspicions that God took him out. Uh, 
Again, again, I'm not making the claim that that's always the, and it doesn't always happen. I mean, you know, you can point to a billion different circumstances when that doesn't. But here's the point. God sometimes judges immediately, but he will always judge ultimately. Always. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Repentant believers, believers who are, are guilty of these things that have happened, God will forgive us. He forgives us. He's gracious and loving and compassionate. Read Psalm 103. Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding loving kindness. He will not uh, strive with us nor uh, uh, regard our iniquities forever. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He will forgive. Now, that's not a license to keep sinning, you know. But persistent, unrepentant sexual immorality, persistent, unrepentant sexual immorality is inconsistent with being a member of God's family. Because that's not who God is. The Spirit of God within us you know, there, there needs to be repentance. If there's no repentance, then there should be a question as to whether, whether I'm just a professing person or whether I'm possessing faith in Jesus Christ. That's the, 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 the text of Scripture. And it results in eternal separation. This persistent, unrepentant sexual immorality will result in condemnation. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 or 8 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators and the sexual immoral, nor idolaters. Now again, it's not just sexual sins that he's talking about here. Okay? Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. What? Shall inherit the kingdom of God. This is God's word. That's what he says. God will punish all sinners. But he's waiting to forgive us as well. What you don't have here is, now I want you to write this down, go home and read it, is verse 11. Because Paul goes on, he says, and such were some of you. But you have been redeemed. You've been justified. You've been forgiven in the person and through the person and work of Jesus. Folks, God never condones sin. He always confronts sin so that those who are caught in sin can be freed from sin. Do you understand? It's not a loving thing to condone sin. Because what does it do? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We do not name sin as sin. Then the people who are sinning think that they're fine. And if they think that they're fine, then they're destined for destruction. And if my kid is walking towards an electrical outlet, soaking wet, and going to grab a hold of the, the, or an electric fence, I'm going I'm to do what I can to dive bomb them and keep them from that. Why? Because I'm a mean, capricious, uh, obnoxious, rule-keeping, straight, narrow, Bible-beating believer? No, because I love my kid. I don't want him to die. God is not capricious. That means unnecessarily mean and just wanting to squish us like a bug, delighting in our demise. No, he's a very gracious and compassionate God. 
He wants to forgive us. He wants us to be part of his family. And he knows that we will not survive or thrive in the wilderness of worldliness if we capitulate to its standards. And so he calls us to a better life. Single people, God calls you to sexual purity. And the Spirit of God alone will give you the power to make that happen. From this day forward, you know, I meet, I meet couples in my office for premarital counseling, and I said, you know what? Here, I'm not getting into your past, but from this day forward, you need to commit to me and before God that you will remain chaste, sexually inactive from this day forward until the day you're married. If you want God's blessing on your marriage, you must go through it God's way. God doesn't bless sin. Are you willing? You up for that? If you're not up for that, there's a justice of peace. You can go down to the courthouse. You can go to fly to Vegas. You can get married. It's not, I'm not keeping you from getting married. But I'm not in for wedding. I, I'm, not, I'm not a wedding performer. I'm a pastor. I care about your soul. And if you are married, faithfulness. Secondly, with our money. You know, this is like, whoa, this is like a heavy-hitting text, right? Okay, we talked about marriage. Now we're going to talk about the other thing that nobody in the church wants any pastor to talk about, and that's money. I'm going there, okay? With our money. Because I'm in the text, do you see the blessedness of marching through the Bible? Because when you march through the Bible, you get to everything that people don't want you to get to, but you don't do it because you cherry-picked it. I didn't wake up this morning and say, oh, well, I'm going to talk about money because the church is really hurting for money. That's not true, as far as I know. I'm still getting paid. You know, uh, you know so I'm not speaking you know, heavy-handedly because we need padded, you know, we're not selling stuff. I'm not selling anointing oil. I'm not uh, selling special hand sanitizer that is uh, you know, from the Holy Land or something like that because we need funds. No. Three concerns, a proper attitude. Let your character be free from the love of money. Your character free from the love of money. You see, love for money, it is a perpetual temptation for every generation that we must resist. Authentic believers are growing in their resistance to the love of money. I, I, I think that's true. I hope that's true. Because I don't know that all of us, any of us have arrived, some people further along than others, but we're kind of like working our way out of our freedom from the love of money by God's grace and by his power. First Timothy chapter 6, I want you to look at this text. It's a text that many of you are familiar with, verses 8 through 10. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, money is an inanimate object that is neutral. Okay. It's the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Now, that's a New American standard. Pain, okay, just say pain, many a pain, okay. You see, money itself is not evil, but it's longing for it. Paul even called it greed is idolatry. You think about it. We're either trusting in Christ or our cash, that's the idea. The love of money is idolatry. And God wants us, he wants our hearts. Matthew chapter 6, you can read this uh, later if you want to, verses 19 through 24. You know, 
don't, you know, just don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and, stru- and, and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The antidote to avarice or greed is seen in the action. Okay, so if you look at verse 5, here's the attitude. Let your character be free from the love of money. Well, what's the action? Being content with what you have. Being content. Our clamoring for cash is a lack of, I mean, but you know I, know, I know, folks, we live in America. That's the marketing, that's what marketing is. It's to create within us a need we don't have. They, they try to create within us something, a desire for something we really don't need, but we think we need it because they said we need to have it. And if we have it, then we'll be fulfilled. The problem is, the more we get, the less we realize that we're fulfilled, so the more we want. And then the more we want, the more we need, the more we need, the less we have. Paul gives us the antidote. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13. I'll put them up on the screen for you. Not that I speak from want. Interesting, isn't it? Paul says, I I don't need anything. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Can you say that? Marla and I lived in a 12 by 52 trailer that we were so close to. You ever, ever gone camping, you know, you camp in a trailer? You hear people brushing their teeth and, and doing other things, and it's just, it's just like no privacy. That was our life for the first two years of marriage. 12 by 52 trailer in a mobile home park, you know. We didn't know any better. We were fine. It was way better than a tent, you know. Paul says, I know how to get along. Read the words again. I know how. Did he want to get along on little? No, but I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content. Folks, it is not wrong to be blessed by God as long as we're content. It's not wrong to have a lack as long as we're content. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. And then he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. He had Christ. So he learned a contentment through the person and relationship with Christ. And the steps to learning contentment begin, first of all, with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. He's Augustine. Our souls are restless until we find our rest in you. Until we find, we're, uh, I'll use this term again, so I call it destination sickness. Most of us suffer from destination sickness. Wherever we are, we want to be somewhere else. And when we get somewhere else, we're not satisfied with where we're at there. We have to be somewhere else. And so it's destination sickness. I'm sick wherever I'm at because I want to be somewhere else that I'm not. And when I get there, I realize there's somewhere else I need to be. And then I want to get there. And when I get there, I realize, and we're going to chase our tail the rest of our lives until we find our contentment in Jesus. Because only Christ satisfies the deepest longing of our heart. That is 
I, I, I don't need other people's affirmation. I don't need other people's acceptance. I don't need what they have. I have Christ, and I am forgiven, and I can live my life, and I know that I'm accepted by God, my Heavenly Father. Yeah, I screw up, I mess up, I fall short, but you know what? At the end of the day, God still loves me, and He is my Father. And Norb, thank you, brother. We are thankful for our Father on Father's Day. He is a good, good Father. Way better than any earthly father. You know, I'm at Father's Day and I have three kids and I'm blessed beyond I compare. But I, it grieves me the way that I have hurt my kids. Because I know that I'm not the father that the Heavenly Father is. I just pray that by God's grace I can give them a taste of their Heavenly Father. Contentment. So the second uh, Secret, or not secret, I, I don't want to say secret, just some ideas I came up with. The first one's not mine, that's God's. Jesus, you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that's the only way to be content. Paul says, I've learned the secret, and it's through Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there will be no contentment. Now, with Jesus, then there's some other things. First of all, live within our means. Try to live within our means. I like what Howard Dayton said in his book, Your Money. He said, the modern American is a person who drives a bank-financed car over a bond-financed highway on credit card gas to open a charge account at a department store so he can fill his savings and loan-financed home with installment-purchased furniture. Now, it's true. You know, the average credit card debt, that means what's carried over each month in America, is $5,700. Now, put that at 20% interest. You know, just figure 20% interest on $5,700 and keep multiplying it times 12. That's every month. I'm not the actuary. You can talk to Alec down here, or you can talk to, uh, you know, anyone, or, or Mike Hirons, or you can talk to Brent, or some of our, uh, Mark Grubb, these accountant people. They can give you the actuarial numbers on what that, what that interest turns into. But it gets to be pretty soon, you know, like uh, Vander J., uh, Vanderbilt used to say, a million here and a million there, and pretty soon you're talking big money. 5,700 here, 5,700 there, pretty soon, you know, for, for people like me, that gets to be a lot. So live within our means. John Piper's statement is a challenge to me. He says, trusting God tends towards simplicity, not accumulation. Live within our means. Spending no more than we make teaches us to be happy and satisfied and blessed with what we have. Second, thirdly, giving as a priority. You know, giving is more, much more than God getting our money. It's an avenue to him developing us spiritually. Because I have to trust him, not my money. And it's not my money anyway, because I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for him. So he gave it to me. Jesus said, store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Paul says, lay up for yourselves a, a foundation for the coming age by giving. Giving is not so much about God procuring our funds as it is him about maturing our faith. You know, when we give to God's work, guess what? Oh, the church or the God's work gets our money, but God gets our heart. Where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. And so that's what God has. I did a little... Search and push pay in 2018 said this. 
This is their statistic, so you can probably find another one. I mean, statistics are statistics, okay? So just don't take it too literally, but there is uh, something a little concerning about this. It says only 1% of those making $75,000 or more give 10% to the church. 1% of those making $75,000 or more give 10% to the church. The average Christian gives 2.5% to the church. Now, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big hum, hung up on percentages, you know. The New Testament actually never talks about a tithe. This is, the Lord says, give as you, may, as you prosper. In the Old Testament, the tithe was the standard. It was the basic. But you know the Levites tithed on their tithe? I mean, they got a tithe and then they had to tithe. So they actually gave more. So I'm not, you know. And praise God, I have no idea what any of you give but me. Okay? So it's not for somebody else. This is for you. This is for me. How can I be free from the love of money? How can I be free from greed? Our lack of money is a lack of dependency upon God. And then the other thing that I thought about was you can limit our work. I mean, we don't have to work so much. Or do we? Well, yeah, if we're living beyond our means, then we have to work so much. (laughs) You know, we'd like a little gerbil in the cage. We can't get off because, you know, we might die, or we think. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And then what's the motivation for that? A quotation from the Old Testament. For he himself, quoting Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 through 8, as Moses is to command the people of Israel to go into the promised land because they messed up the first time. This is the second time they're supposed to go in. And Moses is not going, but God says, here's what you tell him. I will never leave you or forsake you. a promise for God's presence, for God's protection, and God's provision. And the promise that he gave to the people of God then was based on the character of God so that the promise is based on his character is true for us today. I will never leave you or forsake you. God promises us his presence, his protection, and his provision. Isn't it? Jesus said it. You read it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Lo, I am with you always. What? Even to the end of the age. And Jesus is with us as well. Free from the love of money. Contentment presupposes our trust and confidence in God that his promises are true. When I'm Trusting his promises, I will be content because he's promised his presence, his protection, and his provision. In regardless of my circumstance. My circumstance is not, he didn't say, well, they're getting ready to go into the promised land and beat the, the sons of Anakim, the big dudes, you know. They're, they're, they're going in to face them and wipe out the Canaanites and do all that stuff. And he says it doesn't really matter. God's permanent, sufficient, and benevolent provision are set in contrast to money. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, uh, says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This is the destination sickness. Okay. It's not enough. You know, isn't it true that there's some uh, lady who was a, a millionaire, and she was going around, or some lady, actually, she was going around digging through garbage. And she looked like a homeless person. And they found out she was a millionaire, and she'd find money in the garbage, and they said, well, how much more do you need? Oh, just one more dollar. 
just one more dollar. Digging through the garbage for one more dollar. And she didn't think she had enough. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says, let those who are rich in this present world. Now I'll tell you this, I told uh, one of the guys the other day, if you own a car, it doesn't even matter if it's up on blocks in your front yard with no wheels on it, and you, you, you have a home, you're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. Not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And when that's true, when we're understanding and claiming the promises of God, then we can say with the psalmist, which is, he, he is quoted here at the end uh, in verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's a beautiful statement. I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Because, you know, in Christ, go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, The greatest need we have was met in Christ who forgave our sins and cleansed us so that we'd be in a right relationship with God. So why should we fear from anybody else anything? There's nothing they can keep from me that I need more than I've already been given in Christ. I have it. I have it all. All that I need. I like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. He says, don't, don't fear those guys that can kill the body. Here's the one you got to be afraid of. The one after he has destroyed your body can send your soul to hell. But if we're in Christ, read it, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. I don't have time to go there and following. If we're in Christ, we're not going to hell. I don't need to fear the one who can kill the body and send me to hell because I'm his child. He's my dad. Praise God. And then finally, not only with our marriage and with our money, but with our mindset. And there's two groups of people that the author of Hebrews says, hey, remember this and let this percolate in your mind. It'll help you thrive. Our leaders, leaders are those who brought the word of God to us, taught the word of God to us, and then they died. We're supposed to remember them, and they, but their, their truth that they proclaimed and practiced, we're supposed to be remembering it and, and impacted by the life that they lived and demonstrated in front of us, and then we're supposed to imitate their faith. Chuck Smith. I remember walking into Dr. Smith's office. Dr. Charles Smith, but he went by Chuck. It was a First-year seminary student, I walked into his office, big fancy office with a big desk. He was sitting behind his desk, and Dr. Smith got up from behind. I sat down in the chair. You know how the typical thing is, the power, power play. You know, power. Okay, you're the peon. You sit behind the desk. I'm looking over the desk at you, probably some elevator. He got up from behind his desk. He came around behind, and he sat down right next to me. And I thought... I think I can learn a lot from this guy. That's the kind of man I want to be. I don't want to sit across a desk from people and power up on them. I want to sit down beside him, his, his commonality and his grace. He was an old Kentucky farm boy, you know. He's brilliant. And he taught us theology, and he expected us to live out the theology that he taught us. After I graduated from seminary, he contracted cancer. 
And he contracted cancer. And in the last seminary address to the graduating class that he ever gave in his life, he said this to the class. He said that I have contracted cancer and uh, it's gone into remission. But I pray that it will return if it will draw me closer to Christ. It did return. And when it returned, he said this. He said, I am concerned for my sons. He had two sons. He says, I have taught them to live well, and now it is my prayer that I will teach them to die well. One of my leaders who taught me the word of God, who brought me the word of God, who applied the word of God, who inspired me to live the word of God. He says, remember your leaders. Folks, some of you haven't had them. Some of you have. But it's good to call to mind those leaders. But you know what the problem is? Those leaders die. And the memory of them kind of evaporates. And so the valuable lesson that they taught us sometimes are, are just kind of uh, grasped out in straws and they don't last. And so he concludes with this. And Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the same Jesus who brought the truth of the word of God to them yesterday, the faith that they had, they had in Jesus Christ yesterday, and the same Jesus is the redeemer and savior of all today, and he is the one who will be the redeemer and savior forever. And so we remember those who walked before us and who taught us, but we also cling to the one who walks beside us. And then we can thrive and not just survive in the wilderness of worldliness. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, some of the things that I've said, some of the things that the Word of God has said may be grating against your sensibilities. You say, oh, I don't know. This is kind of obnoxious little stuff. I don't know if I really like this. Well, here's the deal. God is not capricious. This is, God is gracious. He's, he, he never condones sin. I said this before. He never condones sin, but he always confronts sin so that we can repent of our sin and come to know him. That's a loving thing. So you can repent and trust Christ's death as the payment for your sins. You can believe and receive the gift of eternal life, or you can reject it and receive his condemnation. I want you to receive it. And believers, oh, glorious day. The Spirit of God lives within us. Read Ephesians chapter 2 at the end of it. Because we have the power of God within us to live, to honor God's design and definition of marriage. We have God's power living within us to be free from the love of money. And through him, we can trust our leaders that have gone and, and let their lessons resonate and, and instruct us, and then we can continue to press ahead with Jesus at our side. And so when we take the bread and the, and the cup this morning, we remember the cross of Christ. But we don't just remember the cross of Christ. We remember the resurrection of Christ. 
Because as believers, putting our faith or our trust in him, according to what Paul said in Ephesians or Romans chapter 6, we participate in both. We've been united with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection so that we can live in newness of life. And we can honor him in our marriage. Whether we're married or not. Honor marriage, see. Don't have to be married to honor marriage. With our money. With our minds. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would work in each of our hearts. I pray that everyone here who names the name of Jesus would know that they're free and invited to come and celebrate this remembrance through the symbol of your body broken and the symbol of your blood shed as we take the bread and take the cup and that we'd be encouraged and inspired, Father, to, to, to live lives that bring honor to our Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take the bread and the cup, it's a, it's a chance to reflect and to ask, where is my hope? And I just pray as we sing this song, How Deep the Father's Love, that we would, would use it as a prayer to say, Father God, you are my hope. And Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, I'm going to cast my anchor on him. How do you